please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, we will be reading from Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Um, This portion of scripture can be found on page 122. It might say page 109, but it should be page 122 of the blue ASV Bibles. Those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seats in front of you. As a reminder, those Bibles are for you to take home if you do not have one already. Once again, we'll be reading Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Thus says God's word. Let's pray over what we've heard. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we thank you for um, the mystery that you have hidden in the old covenant that's now revealed in the new. And Lord, we pray that we would delight in that just as Samson delighted in the honey that he found. Lord, we pray that we would feast on your word today and be refreshed by it, be strengthened by it, and, and God, that we would be changed by it. God, I pray for uh, the miracle of hearing, God, not just the words that come out of my natural mouth, but the words that your spirit is saying that are infinitely more perfect than I could ever attempt to, uh, God, just articulate. And so, Lord, I, I pray for that. And I do pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me to speak as a vessel surrendered to you and that what I say would be beneficial and not tainted with my own opinion and my own perspective, but it would be in line perfectly with your word. And I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this congregation. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so glad you're here this morning. Um, I want to just uh, remind you, if I can, um, that next week, uh, uh, I, I want to make mention of this is our, is our quarterly missions offering. Every 
quarter, we uh, raise $6,000 and send it all over the world. Um, not a penny of it stays here. We don't, we're not like when you buy something online, we don't have administrative fees and that sort of thing and 100% goes out. And um, at this point, we still need to raise about $3,400. And so I'm asking from the bottom of my heart, just come with as much generosity as you can. You don't have to wait till next week. We'll actually take a physical offering, but you can go online and do that any time in the next seven days. And, um, and we will be so grateful for that. We've, we've never, uh, failed to give our missionaries what we promised them. And we want to do that this time around too. So if you would just plan now to make the most generous offering that you can possibly afford to help us with that. And on a second note, I want to thank you for that sweet prayer. Um, sadly, I'm getting to a point in my life where I'd rather most people ignore my birthday and stop counting. And, um, uh, but I, I'm really grateful for that. That was really sweet. I thank uh, Gabe for doing that. And, um, so thank you guys. I, I the greatest, uh, pleasure of my life outside of being Ginger's husband and my son's father and my grandchildren's grandfather is being your pastor. And I want you to know, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So I'm, I'm touched and humbled. Um, Well, this morning, we have, after finishing our series on Mark that uh, we were in so long, we've turned to the Old Testament book of Judges, which may seem kind of random to you. We were examining just a little snippet from the life of Samson. And I'm assuming that most of us, many of us, are somewhat familiar at least, especially if you've been raised in church, with the story of Samson. You'll recall that the Bible Stories that you heard in children's church and Sunday school chronicle his great spirit-enabled strength with which he delivered Israel from the oppression of their enemies. And Samson's strength was unique in that it wasn't because he was hitting the gym every day. It wasn't because he was, you know, overdosing on anabolic steroids. Uh, Samson's great strength came from his obedience to God in what was known as the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was pretty wide, encompassing many things, but but it meant three primary things. That he would he made a pledge to stay completely away from alcohol in any form, and that he would stay away from things that were dead, and that he would never let a razor touch his hair. Or his beard, kind of like Josh. And I hate that that joke was wasted on a Sunday when he wasn't here. But but um, but we'll tell him next week. As long as Samson kept the elements of this vow, God was with him and supplied him a supernatural might to in order to fight his enemies. But here's where it gets a little tricky. If you are familiar with the story of Samson, you know that Samson, over the course of his story in the book of Judges, broke every single one of those commitments. Every one of them, including he does so in the story that we read today. Now, Spurgeon, in commenting on the text that I'm talking about today, he he noted that, that Samson is an enigma. He is difficult to explain. He can hardly be called a biblical hero in the strictest sense of the term, you know, the the strictest meaning. And yet, this is what I want you to focus on this morning. Within this text, this little snapshot we have, we find an absolutely beautiful, majestic, magnificent type of Christ if we're willing to look close enough. And this is true regardless of the holes that are so obvious in Samson's character. Samson, 
like nobody else, or like everybody else, Samson cannot be compared to Christ in the beauty, the purity, the faithfulness of Christ. Christ stands alone. But by the Spirit's inspiration, we can still see the outline of Christ right here in this story. Now, this isn't really as unusual as it might sound. Jesus himself, during his ministry, you can read this in the Gospels, he saw illustrations of himself in the life of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, if you remember Jonah, Jonah was reluctant. And that reluctance led to disobedience. And Jonah did a lot of griping. He also compared himself to Solomon, whose life, if you read his story, includes an insatiable sexual appetite, which led him into idolatry. See, the Old Testament is inspired in such a way that we see pictures of Christ and allusions to his perfect ministry everywhere, from Noah's Ark to the slaying of Goliath by David. But guess what? Noah was a drunk, and David was an adulterer and a murderer. Though though these messianic pictures in the Old Testament are painted for us in the tainted colors of humanity, how many know about the tainted colors of humanity from your own personal experience? Even though that we see them in those colors, it remains a faithful witness through its words and through its images that God's promises would be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So, in this story, we see that Samson is attracted to a young Philistine maiden, and it causes him to insist with great insistence that his father go and get him get her for him for a wife. And this is the custom of of that day, that marriages were arranged and the fathers set it up as almost like a contract how they would get their wives. And while the, 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 the very thought of him marrying a Philistine woman, one of Israel's enemies, is a disturbing one for his parents, the Bible says that this was orchestrated by God in his sovereignty so that he might execute justice on Israel's enemies. Now, The way that God takes his opportunity against the Philistines in this passage is a fascinating story. It can be found in Judges chapter 13 through chapter 16. But that is not my concern this morning. I hope that you'll read that sometime later this week. I hope as you're reading through your Bible, you'll go through uh, Judges 13 through 16 and get the whole story. But I want to focus on the snapshot from Samson's life that we read about this morning. Now, Those of you who regularly attend here, you know that I usually take long sections of Scripture, usually a book, and I go through them verse by verse, and it takes a long time. But today I want to set up an idea that we're going to build on for just the next few weeks. And my hope is that when we're done, starting here and going to where we're going, that it will make all of Scripture more fully uh, you know, clear for you and, and, and more fully, uh, beautiful for you. But today we're not really talking about Samson and we're not really talking from the book of Judges. We're using this text as a reference point to see Jesus more clearly, which is a great way to use the Old Testament to see Jesus. And also, we want to understand the beauty and the depth of the Christian life that Jesus has called us to better. So, let's review the story. In our text, Samson's father heeds his son's request and goes with him to this town called Timnah to secure this woman as a wife for Samson. When they arrive at Timnah, 
Samson takes a small detour off the road into the vineyards close to the city, probably to collect some grapes to refresh himself after this long journey on foot. And it was at this moment that a young lion emerges from the vines, suddenly, immediately, frighteningly. Now, when it says a young lion, it's not referring to a cub that playfully growls at him that would be cute. And it's not referring to an old lion that's separated from its pride but is well past its, uh, from its pride but well past its prime. This beast, this young lion, is in the absolute pinnacle of its strength. It, it's, it is full of life, full of vigor, and ready to take down some prey. And Samson has the unlucky distinction of being that prey. And the text tells us that it comes out from the, from the vines roaring at him. It doesn't creep up on him. It doesn't stalk him. It comes with a roar. Now, I am not prophetic or psychic or any such thing, but I believe that any one of us would take immediate notice of that lion as a dire predicament for ourselves. Amen? Especially hearing that mighty roar. But here's the deal. Samson, armed with absolutely nothing, according to the text... But his supernatural strength, he takes hold of the lion and proceeds to tear it to pieces as though it were but a baby goat. Just rip it to pieces. And he does this with absolutely no injury to himself. The next part of the story is pretty incredible because in what seems to be great humility, he makes no mention of this feat of strength to his parents. I do not have that kind of humility. If I was walking through you, through a vineyard, and, and you said, hey, Mark, where you been? I just took down a lion. That's, that would be more my mode of communication. But he makes no mention of it to his parents. And so the three of them proceed to Timnah, make arrangements for Samson to marry the young Philistine woman, and then they return home. Now, marriages, as they are today, are very serious affairs. They dowries had to be agreed upon. The groom had to make sure that he he had a home, that it was properly prepared, it was properly appointed. The bride had to return home and prepare to leave her home, her family, her father, and become a wife. So most scholars that I encountered in studying this believe that it was approximately a year that passed uh, before, uh, from the time that they talked to the parents, talked to the young lady, and then came back to get her. And all the arrangements were being finalized, and the day finally came for Samson to go and get his wife and bring her home. And so Samson, his mother and his father, make the long journey back to retrieve his wife and to have the wedding feast, which is later in the text. And as they pass the vineyards, Samson, in a very masculine kind of thing to do. He remembers the encounter that he had a year ago and wants to take a look at what's left of his kill. I wonder if anything remains of that. And when he does, he makes an absolutely marvelous discovery. A swarm of bees has moved into the long-bleached rib cage of this animal and have filled it with gobs and gobs of fresh honey. So Samson is pleased, and he scoops out handfuls of the honey, and he fills his belly with its sweetness and and, and enjoys it as refreshed. And and furthermore, he takes some of it to his mother and to his father, and, and he shares it with them. They're refreshed. He never again tells them where the honey came from. 
And they're refreshed as he is by indulging in this sweet, bountiful feast. And that's the story. So you might ask, where is Christ hiding in this story? I don't see it. Great story. Must have been pretty cool to experience. But I don't see him. Well, don't you? Can't you see him? It's so beautiful. Can't you see him? See, Christ came from his home. He came from heaven. And he came for the express purpose of receiving for himself a bride that was foreign to all that he was. She was an alien. She was a stranger. She was a bride that was unworthy to be united to him because of her sin and because of the sin of her forebears. And as he entered the vineyards of this earth in order to receive and retrieve his bride, he was encountered by that same strong, roaring lion that had devoured our first parents way back in the Garden of Eden. And without any man-made weapon, no gun, no spear, no knife, but with only a God-appointed cross, he utterly defeated the lion. And Colossians puts it like this, and you, speaking of you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to verse 15, it's awesome. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. See, our enemy has been torn to pieces by holy, nail-scarred hands. Amen? And though it's been a long time, I mean, come on, it's been two millennia. At the very place where our enemy was disarmed, at the very place where he was shamed, at the very place where he was triumphed over, there is now an abundant, ever-flowing hive of sweetness. And Christ, our champion, is now offering that sweetness to us freely. And think about how, if I can use this word, how absurd this is. We, like Samson's mother and father, didn't even know there was a threat. When I was lost, when I was following the pattern of this world, I wasn't thinking about roaring lions. I was just having a good time, just doing my own thing. I was marching on about my business. And now, through God's electing grace, out of nowhere, Jesus shows up with handfuls of grace, handfuls of sweet grace for me to consume, that I might be refreshed, that I might be transformed. See, it's this grace that sweetens my life like honey from the comb. It sweetens my life like nothing that I ever had, that I ever experienced, that I ever reached for in the world ever could. Because see, now we can, those of us who have received this sweetness, can fill our bellies with the the honey of forgiveness. We are not 
under the power of sin anymore. We're not under the condemnation of sin. As Pastor David said Wednesday night, soon in our glorification, we won't even be under the presence of sin anymore. And that forgiveness comes from Jesus who has slain our enemy and brought it to us. We enjoy the the, the honey of sanctification as our desires for the fleeting delicacies of this world dissolve into a hunger for the bread of life. We taste the sweetness of the promise of eternal life that Jesus says can never be taken from us. In our ignorance and our sin, we don't ever fully comprehend where these blessings came from or where they come from. But Christ just keeps bringing them to us, handful by handful, just keeps bringing us the sweetness of his victory. Answers to prayers. Peace in the midst of incredible storms. Wisdom that flows from the scriptures. If I were to ask, has anyone here plumbed the absolute depths of the grace of God? I hope your answer would be a resounding no. That you have not even begun to taste the sweetness that God has provided through the cross of Jesus Christ, that God has provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of us have. And the supply is endlessly plentiful. The spoils that flow from the defeat of sin, from the defeat of the devil, from the defeat of death, will flow in golden sweetness throughout all eternity. And thus we have this invitation In Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen to me, eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And yet, how many of us are walking down the road of life, tired, hungry, because we just won't receive the rich abundance that Christ now offers from his very own hands. And so, in order to deal with that exhaustion, that hunger, we get really into religious compliance, trying to be better Christians trying to have superior morality and and such. And sometimes we forget all that religious stuff and we just try to satisfy that hunger and satiate it with more stuff. If I can just buy one more thing, one more toy, if I can have a little bit more success at work, if I can have that perfect ideal relationship, then maybe I'll be full. And it always, always, always leaves us empty. But see, the gospel... It's beautiful because the gospel looks you in the eyes in the depth of your hunger and it says, if you're hungry, come. If you're hungry, come. Jesus in John six thirty five said to them, I am the bread of life. And listen to this promise and believe it. Even if you never have, believe it. Whoever comes to me shall not Hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you, he says in verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. What is he talking about there? Well, even in a, in a, just a small congregation this size, many of you would say, I have been a Christian for many years. I believe the gospel. See, but believing isn't only about acknowledging a set of facts that you would say are true. Believing requires, it, 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 it requires that you demonstrate that belief by daily trusting in, daily clinging to, daily relying on Christ alone to satisfy the longing of your soul. So the question this morning is, is he your food? Is he your sustenance? Is he your daily bread? Or, pushing him aside, do you need perfect circumstances to be satisfied? Do you need all the world to be in alignment so you can be satisfied? Or maybe you need your doctor to prescribe a handful of pills just so you can be satisfied. What a great opportunity every one of us has today to recognize the places where we've been trying to nourish ourselves on empty spiritual calories, trying to work our way into heaven, or false worldly promises Do this, get that, be with that one, and you'll be happy. But in an act of true repentance this morning, let us return to the table of the Lord, confessing we are hungry. You don't have to leave here hungry. That's a promise. Jesus said, whoever takes the bread of life will never hunger. He'll never thirst So you don't have to leave here hungry. You know how I know? Because Jesus is the lion slayer and his hands are filled with abundance. You don't have to go looking for him. You know why? Because he comes to you and he invites you to eat until you're fully refreshed and fully satisfied. Now I'd like to say, let's pray. But there's more for us to discover in this tiny little text. As we see and acknowledge and rejoice in the fact that Jesus is the victor over our enemy, we also see that the scripture teaches that he calls us to share in his victory in other ways as well. In other words, as we grow in grace, we are called to confidently engage in our own inevitable conflicts with our enraged enemy. This is how the Bible puts it in a couple verses. You guys will be familiar with these. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Ephesians six sixteen. in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the truth revealed by texts like that is that every believer will face conflicts with their defeated enemy in this life. Now you say, well, you just said, Mark, he's he's defeated. Let me explain. He is, in his defeat, he's absolutely restricted. He cannot do anything to rob you of eternal life. Aren't you glad? Amen. He cannot do anything to rob you of your fellowship with God. He cannot separate. The Bible says nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He is powerless to do that. But he still delights in bringing havoc to the people of God. And here's the uncomfortable truth. God allows this 
so that you and I will not become complacent and so that we can have the joy of sharing in his triumph. The best kind of fight is the fight you're guaranteed to win. Amen? We win because we're kept by Jesus' saving grace. We are kept by it. That's what Jude said in his little book. He said, you're kept for God. And we've been given infallible weapons of faith and the word of God. And yet the truth remains, even though we have these things and this promise of being kept, the truth remains that all of us will engage in conflict with the enraged enemy of the church, the enraged enemy of our souls, but we will never lose a battle that Christ has already won for us. Now, you might be breathing a sigh of relief. What I didn't say is that the battle will be easy. Some of you have already been engaged in battles that you didn't think you were going to survive. Some of you might be in the middle of that battle right now. The entirety of the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, promises us that we will, as a guarantee, people love 100% guarantees, 100% guarantee about the Christian life. We will experience hardship. We will experience persecution. We will experience tribulation. Everybody say a mighty amen. <laughs> Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But see, here's the beauty. Our faithful God allows these battles for our sanctification and with the promise of his protection, the promise of his strength. In the seven letters to the churches of Revelation, and in uh, Revelation 2 and 3, the churches are addressed that are undergoing extreme pressure, extreme warfare, warfare from without. But every letter... All seven letters contain a promise to those who by relentless faith will overcome. And it's in this that we see that we can have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, as, as Paul says in Philippians 3. And it's that fellowship in his suffering that holds forth for us the promise of, of uh, experiencing his resurrection power. Our battle with the devil are not only inevitable, but they illuminate the sweetness of the Christian life for us. Now, what? You're saying the hard things, the trouble, the, the, the battles illuminate sweetness. They show us where the honey is. Yes. Look with me if you have your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Go ahead and take a second and open that up. Paul is describing an area of tremendous temptation. He says, a messenger from Satan was given to him to, to uh, enforce this, this hard time, this hard season in his life. And as he's praying that God would remove that, we come to verse 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he, being God, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You know what that means? No matter what the messenger of Satan throws at you, that your, the grace supply that is promised to you is more than enough. And looking across this room, knowing you, most of you as well as I do, I know some of you have seen that and you've experienced it. When life looked like it was going to cut you off at the knees, God supplied his abundant grace and you survived. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Raise your hand if you would like to see the perfect power of Christ in your life. Raise your hand. Now, you just read the verse, so you might be a little hesitant. Raise your hand. Go on. Keep them up. If you want to see the perfect 
power of Christ in your life, the cost is the revelation and the experience of weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul comes to this conclusion. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What if just this group of people made a decision today that in every weakness, in every scary trial, we were going to boast in it so that the power of Christ could rest upon us? Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content, man. I am so convicted by that verse. I am content with weaknesses. But not just that, with insults. Not just that, with hardships. Not just that, with persecutions. Not just that, with calamities. Calamities when everything goes wrong. And why is that, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, it's in the aftermath of our battles. It's in the overcoming of a severe temptation. It's in the hard-won victory in prayer. It's in the patient endurance of sickness or loss that we find the sweet supply of honey that is meant for us to be discovered in the Christian life. Without trial, without these things, I'll speak for myself personally, and if it applies to you, apply it to you. But without trial, I tend to notice that I become lazy. I tend to become entitled. And in my laziness and entitlement, I tend to become super ineffective. I I just wonder if there might be one or two others here that have experienced the same thing. And this is why the Bible tells us to rejoice in what? In everything. Rejoice in everything. Not just the good stuff. Not just when the doctor's report comes back perfect, but when the doctor's report comes back not so perfect. Rejoice in everything. We so often think that if things are going wrong, if if things are hard, it's it, we we turn on on ourselves and we start focusing on our flesh and we just imagine if because this is happening, I must be doing it wrong. Or worse yet, we begin to blame the character of God and say. God is mad at me because this is going all haywire. But see, the trial itself may be where God has hidden the honey of his sufficient grace. It's in the dead body of the lion that you were meant to slay by the power of God where grace will flow out. And we should thank God for for trials and for his constant presence Throughout them. Because guess what? Jesus faced the lion alone. He went to the cross alone. You have never, as a believer, faced any trial alone. God is always with you. We don't become more like Christ by simply fighting righteous battles or experiencing the sweetness in our spirits that result from those battles, but rather when in the aftermath of those battles, we fill our hands with that sweetness and we share it with others. Has Christ taught you something about his, uh, his preserving grace in your tribulation? Well, use that knowledge to encourage your brothers and sisters In Christ, have you learned through personal hardship to persevere in prayer? 
If you have, then begin to intercede for another who's overwhelmed right now by life's rolling tides. Has God sent someone to relieve your burden with a word or a gift or an act of selfless service? Well, be the willing vessel that God uses to relieve and revive the dampened spirits of those around you, especially those who have not already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Bring honey to them. Christ has done what we never could. Amen? He did that by conquering our ancient foe. But his goal in doing so was not to leave us like he found us. He wants to make us like himself, personally experiencing all that the cross purchased for us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, listen to this, are being transformed into the same image. What same image? The image of Christ. We're becoming like Jesus. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me just encourage you. Put on the whole armor of God. Fight the good fight of faith against your adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as you do, refresh yourself by feasting on the sweet grace provided by his victory. And fill your hands with honey from the comb, the honey of the comb of his faithfulness, and share it Everyone you find who is hungry. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much. God, I'm in a room filled with people I love, God, that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They have eaten, God, your words, and they were like honey on their lips, God. And I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that we are not called to Put the devil down, God, because through Christ you already did it. You you made a show of him openly on the cross. And so now, God, you let us engage in battle with him so that we can share in your victory, so that we can enjoy the, the, the spoils of war, God, knowing that all trials, all hardships, all persecutions, all calamities in this life are but temporary until that moment when you call us to be with you. And so we thank you for that, God. Help us to be faithful in warfare, faithful in battle, consistent in faith, always wielding the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And God, when we, when we triumph in your name, let us take the golden crown of that victory and cast it at your feet, knowing that we could have done nothing if you hadn't slain the lion first. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion helpers to come forward and prepare to serve us this morning. Um, we we uh, are about to receive from the table of the Lord and how appropriate for uh, where we landed in Scripture today. And um, these things were not just spiritual things when Jesus spoke about them. He in other words, some kind of ethereal thing. He said, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. And then 
he proceeded to give us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper so that we could have things to hold in our hands, to look at, to taste as a reminder that he has fully satisfied at the cost of his own body, at the cost of his own blood. And he, and he calls us now, who believe in his name, to come and joyfully receive. I remember, I've said this to you before, but I remember when I was growing up, this was always so somber. And I think that we need a little joy injected into our celebration of the table, amen? Because this is our hope. This is our hope that Christ has died and, and he has provided himself for us to, to live upon, to be our daily bread. And um, there's nothing that that should elicit in us but joy. If you're here and you have not made a decision to follow Christ, if you, and you know you haven't, then I want to encourage you to just wait. This is, this is uh, ordinance is for believers only, not because we're trying to withhold anything from anybody, but the, the, it would just have no meaning for you. As I always say, it would be like me, you wearing my wedding ring. You, you'd have it around your finger, but it wouldn't mean anything to you like it means to me. And so just just wait there. But I want you to know we're praying for you. And if we can answer any questions, Pastor Dave, myself, Gabriel, would love to have the opportunity to answer your questions and, and help you um, learn how to come to uh, Christ and feast on him and, and receive eternal life. We'd love to do that. For the rest of you, come and receive these elements and then take them back to your chair and we'll, uh, we'll take them together uh, once we're done. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read these words. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Let's receive the, the body of Christ together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink again of, the, of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup together. Now let's take a moment and give thanks for the feast that we are enjoying in Christ. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for the, the beauty of your plan to redeem us. We thank you for the full and, and total execution of that plan by Jesus. We thank you for the application of that plan by the Holy Spirit. And God, we pray that you would find us daily feasting on you. God, instead of feasting on worry and feasting on, uh, God, distractions from the truth of your word, God, we pray that we would always be looking to you. And so, God, I, I pray that you would just uh, work in our hearts and keep us truly grateful, keep us full and satisfied, refreshed and relieved by what we find uh, uh, from the grace that you offer us from your very own hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction over you. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.